continuing our once-a-month study in Ecclesiastes this morning. We'll be looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. I'll read chapter 1, verses uh, 1 through 11. So if you'll open to the book of Ecclesiastes with me, we'll begin there. Now, as I was preparing for this message and reading verse 8 in particular, I was reminded of my misspent youth in a certain rock song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And that's really the motto of life in this world, though. Life without God doesn't give us any satisfaction. Life without God doesn't bring anything but misery, depression, despair, even suicide. Or it drives people to a fantasy life of escapism with their made-up religions, their Hollywood stories, their debauchery, whatever it may be. It's really a sad estate. People who struggle with the book of Ecclesiastes only look at that side of it, and they don't see in it that it directs us to the hope that the Scriptures have in their entirety. One of the commentators I was reading said, you should never read the book of Ecclesiastes alone, but always with the rest of Scripture open. And that is what we will be doing in our series of Ecclesiastes, is bringing us particularly to the promises we have fulfilled and that we now know of in detail in Christ. Now, the text is organized in a fairly classic Hebrew chiasm. I've mentioned those before, but that's where you have the same thing at each level, and it indents until you get to the core matter. In this one, there's really only three pieces, the two outside and the inside. You have verses 4 through 7, things go on in an endless cycle. And verses 9 through 11, there's nothing new under the sun. And those kind of parallel each other. And then in the heart of the matter, the preacher's point, I think, the eye is not satisfied with seeing the ear filled with hearing. There's no satisfaction in that life under the sun. So let us read the text, and then we'll delve into it. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, the ear is not filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there such a thing of what you have said, see, this is new? It has already been done in the ages before. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things. Yet to be among those who come after. Excuse me. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come together to read this text and to study it, we all know the, the dissatisfaction and the appointment disappointment of life here on earth. And we pray that you would help us to see what you intend in this passage, that we might understand that the life without you, the life apart from you, the life we try to lead in parallel to you, is always going to lead to dissatisfaction, and that our only joy and happiness, our only satisfaction comes from you, our relationship with you and the things that you will give us. Help us, Lord, to examine our hearts as we examine the scriptures, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the first section, nothing really changes for man. The preacher gives four examples of these in the text, and he's really explaining Verse 3, verse 3 said, What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? And his explanation of why he asked that question is in these four points. Now, before I look at those, I should point out that the first verse, verse 4, the Hebrew word there doesn't mean forever, that's translated forever in our text. It doesn't mean eternal in that sense of forever, but it means forever as in it's taking forever. Uh, it, it, and that word carries that meaning more often than eternity. Uh, it could also be used of antiquity, things long ago, or of a very long period of time. And it makes me always think of First Peter three or Second Peter three, where he says, starting in verse four, they will say, "Where is this promise of his coming? For the del- for since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation." meaning that nothing has changed. God hasn't done anything yet. And Peter's answer to them is they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed under the water and through the water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But the same word, by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, been kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The idea here being, they say, oh, nothing has happened, it goes on forever. Forever being a very long period of time, they're overlooking the fact that God has said there will be a change. And the Lord is not slow in fulfilling his slowness because... He is patient. He wants us that no one should perish, but that everyone should reach repentance. He's giving us time here. But the things I wanted you to note were that same eternity is what, what's in mind here. Nothing seems to change to man. It just goes on the way it has. And that's a theme that comes with the other, the other three items as well. What happens, happens again, and happens again, forever it seems, or at least until the Lord changes things. So the question I would ask about that first verse, a generation goes and generation comes, but the earth remains forever. It remains the same. People want to change the world. They have celebrations. They have time has its man of the year. Many of them are monsters and evil, but they seem to enjoy making them celebrated. But did they really change the world? For how long? 
in what way? You know, will it even be remembered? How many Adolf Hitlers have there been in history? Uh, quite a few, as history has repeated itself over and over again. The wicked never do anything, but they repeat the sins of the past. Uh, they seem new in some way, but they're really no different than the old. How long will they be remembered? Think of the kings of Babylon and Assyria. They were monsters probably every bit as great, if not greater, than Hitler. Yet, they're forgotten almost everybody who, other than those who read the Bible. They're just a bookmark in history somewhere. And that's the way it is with the greatest of men, remembered for their evil. Uh, nobody remembers the great leaders very well. They're forgotten. Their changes, their impact on history and on society may linger on for a few decades, maybe centuries, but in the end, the world just continues on. The next generation seems always to be a throwback to one of the previous generations. It usually skips a generation, but you know, it just keeps going on. I remember, I can't remember, it was Monty Python or Emo Phillips, we're all different here. And one man says, I'm not. Which, of course, is different, but uh, you know, it's a big joke. We all, everybody wants to be different. The current generation, everybody wants to have a tattoo to show they're different from others. They're showing they're different from their parents' generation, but they're being just like everybody in their generation, and guess what? It's not the first time that's happened in history. It goes on and on. It's just a big cycle. You know, the same sins, the same rebellions, the same new ideas just come over and over again. You know, the young think, oh, we're doing something different, and they're excited. But one day they grow up, and they realize, as we have, no, that wasn't really any different than what happened you know, 50 years before or 100 years before. We're just doing the same things. We're just doing it a little differently. As he says, the sun rises, the sun goes down, and it hastens back to the place where it rises. We think, oh, it's a new day. Have something new, but there's nothing new. And then the next day becomes the next day. When we were young, you know, a week seems like a long time. Now, it's been a year already? What happened? <laughs> and as we get older, we see that. We, we think that endless cycle, a day, the sun goes up, it goes down, it comes back up again. The moon goes from full to new to full, and it just goes on and on. The seasons change. Spring follows winter. Summer follows spring. Fall follows summer. Winter comes again. It just goes on and on, and the older you get, the more you realize that, yeah, they're different. This month is different than last month. This season is different than last season. This year brings different challenges than last year. But nothing has really changed. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. You remember the story of the sun, year without a summer? Have you heard that tale? There was a summer without any warmth. The sun barely shone. Crops failed. People suffered horribly. There was famine, there was death, there was war. It's a common story throughout history. There have been many reasons for that. But that particular year, in April of 1815, Mount Tambora, a volcano on an island near Bali in Indonesia, 
erupted in what is considered the largest eruption in recorded history. The large particles spewed out by the volcano fell to the ground, covering towns with enough ash to collapse homes. There are reports that there were several feet of ash floating on the ocean. Several feet. It's amazing. Ships had to plow through it to get from place to place. But the smaller particles went all the way up into the stratosphere, and they spread out over the whole world and shaded the world. Now, they say the average global temperature only dropped three degrees Celsius. Not much, but that, and that was a temporary effect, but it had catastrophic repercussions for the world. But if you think about it, you know, how does a little island down in Indonesia on the southern end of the world ruin the climate of Britain? Because the, sun, the, the, the particles go round and round. And it wasn't the same year that they had the year without summer. It was the following year because it took that long for it to circulate around and around the world. The wind just keeps going. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't go somewhere and stop and new wind come. It's the same air we have circulating. And that's his point. What, what goes around, it really isn't gone. It comes back. It's the same. His principle here is that nothing really changes. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. And we understand how this works now. The evaporation of the sea goes up to the clouds. The clouds circulate with the wind around and around the world. When they get over land, they drop the water. The water runs down the stream back to the ocean. The cycle is repeated endlessly. A Greek philosopher named Heraclitus, he's called the obscure, because it was, not because people don't know who he is, but because his writings are so obscure to figure out. But he said, he's the one who said, no man ever steps in the same river twice. For it is not the same river, and he is not the same man. And while, yeah, there's some truth to that, he's wrong because you're really the same person. And we'll talk about this a little later. Even though we've changed, we're still the same person. And even though the water has moved on, it's coming back again. There's no, no real change. It seems like change. But all the change in life is not something that helps. Society is not better off today than it was a couple of generations ago or a couple of hundred years ago or a couple of thousand years ago. Yes, we have more technology. Yes, we have better health care. But it doesn't really make the world a better place. I don't think the level of crime, the level of debauchery, the level of misery, the level of suffering has really changed that much. It, it goes up and down, yes, but it hasn't gotten better. We see the example of what he's saying in the book of Judges in the Bible most clearly. If you've ever read the book of Judges cover to cover, you'll know the cycle. It becomes apparent. By the end, it becomes very depressing. What happens? There's a godly judge, God has put in charge, and they hold back the debauchery of Israel. They keep Israel in check. And Israel does well, but the judge dies, and Israel apostatizes. And as they get more and more wicked and more and more depraved, God eventually hands them over to their enemies to punish them. And after they've been punished for a while, they cry out to God for help. 
They repent and turn back to God as a nation. And God appoints a new godly judge, and that judge rescues them and guides them and leads them until he dies. Rinse and repeat over and over again. Each one was different. Each judge had a different character. Each time Israel repented, they led a different life, but it was all essentially the same. It continues on into the king's time, a little differently, though, but the same. God sends prophets to rebuke Israel. Sometimes they repent, but usually they refuse to repent. When they repent, it goes just like Israel until that prophet or that king dies. They do well. Then once the new one comes in, they go back to their old ways and apostatize again. The different part being, though, that God stores up his wrath until he sends them into exile. But it's still the same thing. We see this throughout history. You know, nations rise, they have these great ideas and these great principles. Think of the Greek and Roman civilizations and their ideas of you know, how people should make choices and where democracy really comes from. And they were going to do it that way. And what happens in the end? I mean, you get people like Nero in Rome. His depravity and wickedness was so much that the kingdom changed. The country fell. It happens all throughout Europe. Kings would rise and they would have great ideals. And then their sons and their sons and their sons. Eventually, they would become to the point where they were so evil that even their own people overthrow them. And America isn't really that much different. You know, we started off being a country to make ourselves better and to take care of ourselves and to, to raise up a nation where people could grow and flourish and succeed and do wonderful things. And now we have the principle of no child allowed to exceed. Everybody has to be equal to the dumbest, slowest, laziest person in class. Uh, we've lost our goal, our purpose. And part of that comes because we've turned from God. And the further society turns from God, the more he hardens their hearts, the more they turn from God. And so we see that cycle throughout history of raising, doing great things, becoming corrupt and falling. Rinse and repeat. There's an old saying that when a man or a society does not understand its history, it's doomed to repeat it. Uh, I think the original saying was when they don't know their history, but I changed it to understand because there's a difference between memorizing it and understanding the implications of it. When a society turns from God, it's doomed. But every time we say, this time we'll get it right, this time we'll do better, all we need to do is destroy the powers that be and raise up new powers and they will do everything right. So democracy has failed. Not because democracy is necessarily bad, but because man is. So totalitarian socialism is the answer. But that's also been done over and over again. There's an interesting saying, one can, that we all have heard, the proverb, wherever you go, there you are. The original meaning was you can't run from your problems. When I remember a cynical comedian making a skit about this, which I don't remember the details of. But his idea was, no matter where you go, you're still there. And so if, what he's trying to say is, if your life is all messed up and you think, oh, I'm going to start over in a new town or a new city, I'm going to go to a new school, 
I'm going to get a different job, and then everything will be better. But if the problem is it's you, then you're going to run into the same problem you had before. Same stuff, different day. Same stuff, different school, different city, different job. Nothing's going to change because you're still there and you haven't changed. Now, sometimes people do change. I have known alcoholics who got sober and addicts who got clean and thieves who turn over their life of crime apart from Christ. It does happen. It's usually for only a time. I've known a lot of smokers who quit five or six times, some of them. Yeah. Why does it keep happening? Well, as long as they remember the horror that made them want to change, they can stay changed, but if a temptation comes or they forget their horror, they end up right back where they started, and they haven't really changed. They go back to their ways like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. Man without God is a fool. Fool in the book of Proverbs, that was Proverbs uh, 26.11. Fool usually in Proverbs is referring to the person who lacks moral sense, the amoral person. There is a lasting change we can have, though, and that's a new life in Christ. That new life is only found in him. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is fast away, the old, the new has come. Second Corinthians 5.17 Someone who's been born again, as John 3, who has that new heart and new spirit of Ezekiel 36, can make a lasting change if they focus their life on being what they should be. They have that power now in Christ power to truly change. Jesus said, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide for yourselves money bags that do not grow old, with treasure in the heavens that will not fail, when no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For the where your treasure is there, what in your heart be also. That was Luke 12, 32-34. Now, that's the rub. Where our heart is, our treasure is. If our heart is on this life, this world, the things that we can get here, the pleasures that we can have here, the joy that we can find here, then our heart will not be on heavenly things. That's why we're told to keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, Proverbs 4.23. The question is really our focus. Is it on the kingdom? Is it on God? Or is it on the world? Remember 1 John two fifteen and following, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, exactly what we're talking about here in the book of Ecclesiastes, the very things Solomon spends the entire book examining. I got all of these things, all that I could want, all that any man could ever get, what does it lead to? That life under the sun. All the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, he says, is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's told if you want to love the world, then you're at hatred with God. And this is why we get stuck in that despair of Ecclesiastes. Because we want to love the world, but it doesn't do anything for us. 
You know, everything that's happening in the world today, in our country, in our lives, it seems new. It seems unprecedented. I hear that word all the time on the news. But in reality, it's fundamentally no different than what has happened over and over again throughout history. Uh, I know people who absolutely love to read history. I find the study of history the most depressing thing in the world because everything that's been tried has failed, and every time we try it again, it just fails again more spectacularly than the last time. And for me, it's sad because we're living our lives, the world is living its lives and running its countries and its governments apart from God. And even if, as the Jews, they, you know, they make this great effort and they become godly and holy, and even the church, you know, it's godly and holy. Think of the Presbyterians in America and all they suffered to bring Presbyterian, to bring the Christian faith to America. But what happened over time? Yeah. A man dies and his son takes over and his son takes over and pretty soon... You know, what was once a godly institution, think of places like Princeton, produced some of the greatest theologians in American history. Now I don't think a Christian can really survive there. They turn against God. We see that cycle. And then a new institution pops up. We're going to solve the problems. And eventually they go the same way. And then another. And the same with the church. Same with denominations. Because men are generally sinners, it keeps going back to where it belongs, in, in sin, in apostasy, in depravity. So that focus of, you know, of cycles is really seen in the world because when the godly work, it works, but eventually the godless take over. Now, as I said, the young often say, we can change, we can make it different. The young should be in charge, but they eventually figure out that they couldn't do it any better than anyone else. And that leads to what we talked about last time we were in Ecclesiastes, to nihilism, to despair. Remember Alan Pratt gave a definition for nihilism, belief that all values are baseless and nothing can be communicated or known. It's often associated with the extreme pessimism and skepticism that condemns even existence itself. People believe in nothing. They have no loyalties and no purpose other than perhaps a desire to destroy. That's where this all leads us back to. That's where the world goes as they look at themselves and they look at what's happening. And that brings us to verse 8. Nothing under the sun satisfies man. All things are full of weariness, the summary of verses 2 through 7. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. And thus a transition into the main idea. Have you ever said to a child, or maybe a fool, how many times do we have to do this before you understand? How many times have we said that to ourselves? Like the sun rises and sets and rises again, and the wind blows around the world and again, and like the rain falls from the clouds to the ground and runs to the... The river runs to the sea and evaporates to the clouds and does it all over again. Like the dog returns to his vomit, so the wicked returns to his folly. There's nothing new under the sun. It is wearisome. Who can speak of it? Instead of satisfying us, everything this world has to offer 
endlessly disappoints us. Everything we put hope in other than God proves to be a false hope and betrays us. And that way the eye is not satisfied with seeing and the ear is not filled with hearing because there's nothing really good enough. There's nothing lasting. There's nothing real. Not your spouse, not your job, not your kids, not your health, not your wealth, not your society, not your nation. None of it is really good enough. Sheol and Abaddon, Sheol is the grave and Abaddon the place of destruction, probably hell, are never satisfied and never satisfied of the eyes of man, Proverbs twenty-seven twenty. We see a number of things explicitly mentioned here in the book of Ecclesiastes that don't satisfy. Chapter 2, it's pleasure. Chapter 5 and 6, it's wealth. But we see this also in all the other things mentioned in the book of wisdom, of work, of power, of popularity, prestige, even of our actions. Even piety is shown to be not a thing under in itself of worth. Everything done under the sun. We'll look at each of those as we come to them, but we need to keep that in mind as we think about it. Have you ever found any of those things really satisfying? Have they ever satisfied you? Sure. How long? For a day? A week? A month? I mentioned Bill Gates and my old boss. Bill Gates was once asked about money when he became the richest man in the world. How much until you're satisfied? He made some excuse about it's not how much you have, it's the joy of getting. But ultimately it comes back to he wasn't satisfied with what he had. It wasn't enough. It's never enough. My boss told me that it doesn't matter how much you make, you always need to make a little bit more. Because... The things you can buy, the things you want to have, you can always have better. And that is when man lives his life, especially here in America. We, we live for the day. We live for the moment. We want instant gratification. That's why instant food is more popular than real food in the supermarket. Also think about hedonism. It's an old Greek philosophy it's considered an ethical theory today that pleasure is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. Usually the self-satisfaction and usually the instant satisfaction. But that puts it in direct opposition to Scripture. Scripture, summarized by the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Shorter Catechism, question number one, says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Ask yourselves, when is an amoral person ever satisfied? Hedonism usually leads to debauchery and immorality. I was looking at a survey. I'd seen it before, and I wanted to get numbers off of it. And there are lots of them out there. It tracked the number of um, partners people admitted to having. Uh, yeah, some majority, 18% of people said only one. 18%. But of the rest... I noticed something interesting. Uh, 2% of people was the next highest number, two people. But that could still be 
you know, not involving immorality. Your spouse dies, you be married, you have a new spouse, you now have two. But those claiming five, those claiming between five and ten, ten and fifteen, fifteen and twenty, twenty to thirty, those numbers were about the same percentage. I was shocked. How much is enough? Oh, two, three, four, no. 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50. The numbers were the same. Evenly distributed, which implies, since you have people of all ages taking the survey, that they keep adding to them year after year. And the older people add the more. The numbers, by the way, in their survey went all the way up to 500. Yeah, I was shocked. But I shouldn't be. If you think about it, if you're looking for gratification in that area, when are you finished? When are you satisfied? When, when is enough enough? Never. Never, ever. And that really goes to all the forms of pleasure, all the things we seek our comfort in, our joy in, our pleasure in, outside of God. They all end up that way. And we'll look at that as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes, Lord willing. Another way that people try to get around this lack of satisfaction is through escapism. The most obvious escape is drugs, alcohol or more. And the numbers there are probably even worse. When used to satisfy the meaningless of life, they can't fill that void. As a society that's seeking its satisfaction apart from God, and having an ever-increasing animosity to God, those social problems of drug abuse are becoming more and more serious because once you leave God, there's nothing that satisfies. Nothing is good enough. The eye is never full. The ear is never full. We want something more. They start with alcohol. They move to so-called gateway drugs. They move to harder drugs eventually. They do it from, you know, drinking once in a while at a party, to drinking every weekend, to drinking every day, to being drunk every day, it is a downward spiral. But another form of escapism that's very common is things like movies and books. Hollywood is great at this. Sci-fi, magic, romance, mystery, horror, suspense, whatever. They, people replace reality with that. They want that alternate reality. I remember being very shocked back around 2001. I shouldn't have been, but I was very shocked when I learned that Jediism is a recognized religious philosophy coming from Star Wars. It became popular because a lot of people were listing Jedi as their religion on the senseless back in 2001. And I had to laugh. You know, it's a totally, they admit that it's totally made up, and yet that's what they want to live their life. And they have great conventions where everybody comes dressed as a Star Wars character. That, that's their life, their obsession, their compulsion. The Japanese actually have a name for that. They call it otaku. It's a word that describes the intense, all-consuming, often obsessive interest in things like anime, cartoons, manga, comic books, and fantasy novels based on those, and video games. They also use it for people who are obsessed with computer stuff, but we, we will go there. That sounds... Sorry. Uh, 
but they have a word for it. And the implication of that word is that person is exceeding the point of being rational, then exceeding the point where it starts to damage their social skills and their social standing. Whether it's Star Wars for the older folks or Harry Potter for the younger folks or the Marvel Universe or something else, those things are really just escapism. It's, it's their drug of choice. It's their way of, okay, reality stinks. Everything we're trying to do doesn't work. We'll keep trying, but to satisfy ourselves, because that doesn't work, we'll enter a fantasy world. Others turn to religion or radical politics or varied worldviews with the same, the same thing. It's still fantasy. It's a fantasy to escape what's going on. We all know the examples of these, the New Age movement, environmentalism, socialism, the new racism and sexism, the new sexual immorality. It's not if it's new. I mean, it's all been around forever. We see it, if even just reading the Bible, we can see the examples of those happening in the past. It's nothing new, but it's how they escape reality. Oh, the failure of socialism is not socialism is bad or flawed. It's because there are still non-socialists alive in the world who are opposing it, and they make it fail. I've actually heard that argued by a school teacher, that the reason communism didn't work in Russia was because America was opposing it, but that communism was still the better choice. And you think, think of all the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people who were butchered for opposing it. Well, because they're opposing it, they're hurting it, it would, also, it would be utopia if they weren't opposing it, so it's right to kill them. And you want to bring that to America. Of course, others turn to wisdom. This is more next week, but they're always learning for next month. Remember the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their whole time doing nothing but telling or hearing about something new, Acts 17.21. Why did they not say, oh, I've heard enough, I'm good, I'm done? Because it was never enough, it was never satisfying to them. Why was this ever satisfying to them? Well, they were always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, 2 Timothy 3.7. What is truth? God's Word. Reality. The only real reality is the reality in which God is creator and Lord over all things. We talked about that last month. And since they deny that, they can't come to a real truth that has any satisfaction. They realize it's fake, it's a lie, it's bogus, it's built on shifting sand. But they don't understand we spoke about it last time, but the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned, 1 Corinthians 2.14. We spoke about that a lot last time, and we'll speak about it next time. But they, they realize you know, their knowledge doesn't work, and the reason it doesn't work is built on shifting sand. That rejection of God as Creator and Lord, who they owe their worship and obedience to, because they remove that as the foundation of reality and put their own fantasy in place, it doesn't work. Whether you have a communistic, socialistic, Marxist idea as your base, or whether you have the Jedi religion as your base, they're both fantasy. They're not going to work, and they're not going to satisfy. Scripture gives us some reasons, though, for why we can't find satisfaction in anything. Why are the things we have not satisfying us. 
I know Whelan wants to have a, her own farm and garden really badly, but remember what happened to Adam, right? God said to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat brow, eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. Dust you were, and dust you shall return. How can you be satisfied, even if we had our farm and our garden? You know, oh, it'd be perfect, then I'd be happy. But the reality, the ground itself is going to produce thorns and thistles. It's going to cause you pain. How can you take satisfaction in that? It's a short-lived satisfaction. It's a hollow satisfaction. But that's true of everything in our life here. If that is what we want to be satisfied in, we will not find satisfaction. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. <laughs> For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only creation, but ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly the adoption of sons, redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are were saved. The hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see and wait for it patiently, that's hope. Romans eight twenty through 25 you know, our satisfaction should not be in what we see in the here and now, but in God and in what is promised to come. Now, a second reason I really see in Scripture for why we find no hope or no satisfaction in anything in God has to do with the fact that we're separated from God. God created man in his own image and knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. He walked with man and talked with man in the Garden of Eden. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Shorter catechism question number one I mentioned earlier. All the work and life done, all the things desired, if they are contrary to our purpose, they will not satisfy us. Contrary, I should say, to the purpose God created us for, because that is our true purpose. They cannot satisfy us if they are contrary to that. They'll only torment us and disappoint us. However, our work and life and the things we desire, if we desire those things for that purpose, for God's glory and God's kingdom and for being with him forever, then they can bring us joy and comfort and fill our need. And I think that's a very important thing to remember. As we read through the book of Ecclesiastes, we see glimpses of that repeatedly. And doing it for ourselves brings us nothing, but if we do it, and God gives it to us, and we know God has given it to us, and we're thankful for God, then we can take pleasure in it and find joy in it. That principle is taught repeatedly throughout Ecclesiastes. Scripture also, though, gives us the antidote for our dissatisfaction with light. I've kind of hinted at it, but it starts with reconciliation in Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The old, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to him us to himself 
and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting the trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17-19. Once we are reconciled with Christ, that separation from God is partially gone. You know, it will only be fully gone when we reach eternity and perfection, but it is gone from us for now. The psalmist says, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. I'll turn from my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. When we are a new creation in Christ, we have that new life in Christ. We have that focus changed from the things that disappoint, from the cursed things that never work, to the things of heaven and to eternity. That's the scripture tells us where to find that satisfaction. The Lord is my portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Now that's talking about the lot was cast to decide where the lines of each person in Israel's property would be in the Holy Land when they entered. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night, so my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Psalm 16, 5-9. You know, what a beautiful thought. He is able to take his comfort in what God has given him, because he knows the Lord is with him and by his right hand. And thus he's glad he rejoices. He knows he is secure. What a glorious thing to find our satisfaction in if we know that what we have is a gift from God, that we don't really deserve it, and we know that he has promised us greater things and that our portion, particularly in eternity, is secure. We can have that joy and that comfort and that hope in the things of God rather than the things of the world. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. 1611, the Psalms, continuing on. Think about that. Pleasures forevermore come from God, not from the things of this world, not from the things of this life, but from God. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs nineteen twenty three. Think about that. If we have that fear of the Lord that we've spoken of in our Wednesday class, we can rest satisfied. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. For if you have died and your life is hidden in Christ with God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And our heart should be focused on that day where he returns, that day where he restores all things, that day where we will be with him forever, that day where we will have all of the things that satisfy truly ours. If our treasure is with God, if God is our portion, if knowing him is our joy, if it is our pleasure to draw near to him and to be with him, 
and we can be satisfied with him and with whatever comes our way in this world. If our joy and our hope and our satisfaction are in the world, we will be, as the book of Ecclesiastes teaches over and over again, we'll be very disappointed. So I think that's the point of this section of Scripture. Now, verses 9 through 11 talk about how there is no satisfaction under the sun because there's nothing new under the sun. One of the main themes of the book is under the sun, and we spoke about that at length when we looked at verse 2. And I concluded that we should understand the, the phrase under the sun to be that all that is done in this life here on earth under heaven, especially those things done outside of the kingdom of heaven. Those will see our life, our work, our wisdom, all of these things can be brought under the kingdom of heaven by doing it God's way. And thus there can be satisfaction in them through God and from God. But when we try to do them apart from God, we see what the book of Ecclesiastes shows us, that it is vanity of vanities. Indeed, in this section, we're reminded that there's nothing new under the sun. The Athenians were trying to find their comfort, their joy, their happiness in whatever was new, even if all new for the sake of being new. And no, no improvement, no, new, no added value. Just, oh, it's something new. Good. Let's uh, have the new one. Uh, sometimes like that with my computer. Oh, a new operating system version. Yes, let's put it on. Uh, no, wait till version point two comes out. <laughs> but we want new things. But there's nothing new under the sun. But there is something. I remember a long time ago, somebody explained to me, because I was questioning about eternity and that picture of the saints in heaven gathered around the throne, and when the angels spoke, everybody worshipped God and praised him. I thought, wouldn't that get boring after a million years or even a thousand? And it was pointed out to me that God is infinite. So if you think about that, there's new things you can learn. There's new things that can be revealed every day for all eternity. He can show us new joys and new excitements and new things forever and never run out. I thought, what an interesting thought. We're always looking for what's new. And Ecclesiastes says, and we learn there's nothing new under the sun. Everybody who comes up from something new, we find it's really something that's been before. I remember a big conflict in my younger days. I had these ties that were a third the width of this, thin ties. And I get to work, and there's a man wearing one that's about twice the width of this. And I learned that there are three kinds of ties for men. And depending on your generation, which one you would wear, and it changes from generation to generation, but it's just the three, same three widths, over and over again. And also what is on them, this would be out of style with many people, but I happen to like it because I'm old. Yeah, as, that, as we laugh about that, but it just goes around. There's really not any difference. Religions and heresies are the, really the same way. Either you're worshiping the one true living God in the way he's prescribed in the Bible, or you're not. The heresies we see coming up today are, you know, We've got this new perspective on Paul. No, it's the same old heresy that's been around for generations. New packaging, a fancy wrapper, but the same stuff inside. Of course, I saw an advertisement 
for something today. It says, you know, same good, great taste, but new packaging. So they're not even trying to be new. They're just trying to look new. Uh, we see that, though, what goes around comes around. We're seeing that in Bodhi's book on, Bodhi Bauckham's book on uh, apologetics, that we really need to just understand some basic answers and figure out which question they're really asking, even though they're putting it in a new wrapper. Now, what is the issue they're really talking about? If we have the you know, short list of a dozen answers, we can probably answer them. Because there's nothing really new under the sun. Same religious failings and the same moral failings over and over again. The same politics. Yes, things go out of, out of style for a generation or two, but they come back again. I describe myself as a Reagan-style conservative. There are none of those around right now in politics that I can tell. But they'll come back one day. I mean, I'm running for office. Small government, lower taxes, more freedom, more democracy, more self-personal responsibility. That's out of fad today, even in the church. Nobody wants to support that. But it'll come back. It's been before. It'll be again. There's nothing new under the sun. We don't find any satisfaction in those things. We said, you know, been there, done that, bought the T-shirt, gave it away to goodwill, is, you know, a saying these days because we understand there really isn't anything new. Uh, so I'd like to wrap it up with reminding us of that admonition we read earlier of Jesus. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, Provide for yourself money bags so that do not grow old with a treasure in the heavens that will not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Luke 12, 32-34. We read that earlier. At some point this week, maybe even this very day, we should meditate on that question. Where are we finding our satisfaction in life? Where are we seeking our satisfaction in life? Does it really satisfy our soul? Is it really the one true living God? Is he your treasure, your portion, your joy? It's a question we should really ask ourselves and think about. Because a lot of the sorrow and a lot of the heartburn we have, even as Christians, comes because we're looking to vanity for comfort instead of to Christ. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful mercies to us. We thank you for giving us the instruction of your word, the wisdom from it that we can find and seek, and the realization that it should bring to us of things like this, that there is no joy or no satisfaction in this cursed world outside of you, and that if we simply turn our hearts fully to you and live for you and make your glory and your kingdom our goal and our purpose and our treasure, and that we will find satisfaction for our souls. And so we'd ask you, Lord, to encourage our hearts in that direction, that we might see the things we really place our hopes in, the things of this world, and we might turn them to the things we should really put our hope in, to the things of heaven and of eternity. We ask for your blessing and grace in Jesus' name. Amen.